Hello, and welcome to the Lancet Infectious Diseases podcast for the May issue. My name is Nikolai Humphreys, filling in this month for Richard Lane. We're joined, as per usual, by editor John McConnell. Hi, John. Hi, Nikolai. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Well, let's get straight into things. The first paper we're going to look at is on malaria and pregnancy. John, can you give us some background? What is the main issue here? Is it a concern that antimalarials and specifically the use of artemisinin in early pregnancy could cause problems and neonatal complications? Yes, um, that's in a, it in a nutshell. This is a, a retrospective study looking at um, does the risk of malaria in early pregnancy outweigh any harm from the use of artemisinins to treat malaria. So as you know, artemisinins are now the standard of care for treating malaria. But there is some evidence from animal studies that they could potentially be toxic in pregnancy. So what the authors have done here is that they've gone and looked at a very large data set um, of uh, pregnant women uh, living in refugee camps on the Thai-Burmese border. And they have tried to assess whether there is the benefit of using artemisinins outweighs uh, any potential harm. Could you briefly outline the current study? This must be a difficult area for robust research methodology. Well, it is because the women were not being routinely treated with antimalarials. So what they were really looking for was women who were inadvertently exposed to them. So they would have got them not necessarily knowing that they were pregnant. So they had to look, in order to get a sufficient number of women exposed to uh, artemisinin, they had to look at a database of 48,000 women just, just to get the, the numbers uh, able to draw a meaningful conclusion. And also their end point was miscarriage. So uh, did the use of artemisinins increase the risk of miscarriage? Now, miscarriage is a difficult endpoint because it tends to occur very early in pregnancy uh, and often before women have actually presented to uh, antenatal care. But what the authors were lucky with in this data set is that this is a very well-studied group of women uh, living in these refugee camps. They tend to present very early for antenatal care uh, and they tend to get very regular follow-up. So um, because of the uniqueness um, of this data set, they were able to answer their, their research question. And so what were the main findings? Well, the uh, it's good news, really. So essentially, there was no evidence uh, of increased miscarriage uh, in the first trimester of pregnancy with the use of artemisinin. And what are the implications for policy? Should these results reassure women about the use of antimalarials around the time of pregnancy? Well, I think if we were going to give a really, really conservative conclusion, Conclusion, uh, it would be that in pregnant women with malaria, artemisinin use does not increase the risk of miscarriage. And therefore, derived from that conservative conclusion, we can go on to say that uh, women can be reassured about exposure to this drug during pregnancy, uh, and that there is now a very solid case for prospective studies to be done to uh, assess the safety and efficacy of uh, artemisinins to prevent malaria, uh, to treat malaria in pregnancy. Now, for another paper in the May issue that looks at a rapid point-of-care diagnostic test for HIV. So this is comparing an easy-to-use oral test with a more invasive blood test. Is that right? Yeah, that's the essence of this meta-analysis. So it's a meta-analysis. Uh, it's comparing uh, oral fluids with blood in a rapid point-of-care HIV diagnostic test called Oroquick. And presumably this is an important area of research within the context of screening for HIV. Well, I think it is because oral fluids are more convenient uh, and less invasive than blood as the specimen for testing for uh, HIV positivity. Uh, and therefore, the, the use of oral fluid might pr 
promote uh, more access to, to HIV testing. Could you briefly summarise the systematic review and meta-analysis and its key findings? Well, what this, um, this study found is a very similar uh, specificity for the oral and the blood specimens. So the specificity for both types of specimen was greater than 99% and a slightly lower sensitivity for oral than for blood. But the sensitivity for both was still greater than 98%. So high sensitivity and specificity for the oral test, but the authors and those of an accompanying comment emphasise caution about false positive findings, especially in low prevalence settings. Yes, yeah, so now this does uh, turn out to be quite an important issue uh, according to what this meta-analysis has found. So um, the oral test uh, appears to be more likely to produce false positives in low prevalence settings. So that's where the prevalence of HIV is, is less than 1%. So what the implication of this finding is, uh, is that a second definitive test uh, will be needed to confirm the HIV diagnosis after the uh, oral quick test with oral fluid. Thanks, John. Next, the use of antibiotics after surgery. Let's start with a comment alongside this article, arrestingly titled, The End of Postoperative Antimicrobial Prophylaxis. What exactly is the clinical issue here? Well, this is a randomized trial uh, done in Japan. Premise is that uh, surgical patients receive prophylactic antibiotics to prevent surgical site infections. Now, however, uh, many patients appear to continue to receive antibiotics for days after surgery, even though there's no evidence for efficacy of, of long-term prophylaxis. So what the authors of this study have done uh, is they've compared a, a very short prophylactic course with a much longer prophylactic course. What did the Japanese research on gastric patients show? The comparison groups were antibiotics given before surgery uh, versus antibiotics given before surgery plus immediately after surgery and then for two more days after. And what they found uh, is that surgical site infections, the, the rate of occurrence of surgical site infections, hardly differed between the two regimens. So there was no support whatsoever for uh, efficacy of a, a prolonged course of prophylactic antibiotics. In that case, what are the implications for surgical practice concerning post-operative antibiotic use. The comment authors mentions that the use of prophylactic antibiotics post-operatively has been discontinued in the US, for example, for a decade. Well, that's right. So I think what this study shows uh, is that even in countries such as the USA, where the use of post-operative antibiotics is, is actively discouraged, the findings show that these guidelines, these practice guidelines, uh, are based on real data and real patients. Uh, and then the implications for, uh, for Japan, uh, where it appears that uh, something over 50% of patients are still getting um, post-operative antibiotics for three or four days after surgery uh, is that there is just absolutely no evidence that this is a an efficacious thing to do. So hopefully it will uh, influence practice in, in Japan uh, and discourage the long-term use of uh, post-operative antibiotics. Okay, finally, a review about rabies prevention and the talk of passive immunotherapy for preventing clinical symptoms after rabies virus infection. What is this new approach exactly? Well, what this paper is actually looking at is new approaches to passive immunity in viral infections, using rabies as an example. So if somebody has been ex uh, exposed to rabies um, from, say, uh, an infected dog, then the, the standard approach to prophylaxis is to give them rabies vaccine and also to give them rabies immunoglobin. Um, however, 
the rabies immunoglobin which is given at the moment is derived from people, from human human plasma, or, or it's derived from horses. Um, and so it's a rather expensive approach. This this stuff is is not easy to produce, so it's obviously it's quite a low supply, quite expensive. And so what this paper is looking at is new ways of providing these immunoglobins. Kind of already just answered it then, but are there any other benefits other than cost over conventional rabies prophylaxis? Yeah, so th- this new approach is looking at monoclonal antibodies um, for a rabies immunoprophylaxis. So, of course, if you are producing a monoclonal antibody, you can essentially produce it on in industrial quantities. Um, and therefore, uh, it should make uh, a supply, the supply of immunoglobins, 